Today on the podcast, we've got a special episode for you. We're looking at what happens when crypto platforms go bust. You'll hear from the bankruptcy attorneys who have worked on and are working on these cases. They'll talk about what they've encountered and why a crypto bankruptcy isn't like any other bankruptcy. Stay tuned. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. So let's start off today's episode with a weather report. We are definitely still in the midst of a crypto winter. Both Bitcoin and Ether, perhaps the most well-known cryptocurrencies, have each lost more than 40% of their value in the last 12 months, at least as of this moment. The Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index, which tracks prices across a dozen of the largest coins, is down around 45%. And as we all know, that's bad news for crypto companies, specifically the firms that popped up in recent years to help cryptocurrency owners store their coins, facilitate their trades, and generally foster the crypto community. Thus far, we've seen Chapter 11 filings from Voyager Digital, BlockFi, Celsius, Genesis, and of course, likely the best known, FTX, the company run by Sam Bankman-Fried, once considered a tech wizard and now an accused fraudster. We wanted to know what it was like to be an attorney working on one of these bankruptcies, not just because we're curious journalists, but because if this crypto winter continues, if the proverbial crypto groundhog sees its shadow, there are going to be a lot more bankruptcy attorneys working on these matters. Don Clark is an attorney with the firm Genova Burns who's working on the BlockFi case. He says that to a certain extent, a bankruptcy is a bankruptcy is a bankruptcy. The more you know, we really start going through the case, and really the more I'm learning about crypto, the more it's just the same as everything else. I feel like this is the same thing as any kind of hedge fund collapse, just because it, it's it's all a matter of, you know, loans ultimately under collateralized. And, you know, that's kind of what it just seems like. I mean, all of these crypto bankruptcies seem to have common threads. But the key phrase there is to a certain extent, because while the bankruptcies of BlockFi and FTX may be like a failed hedge fund, these crypto companies are not hedge funds, nor are they banks, though many of them operated like they were. That's important because there are special processes to handle failed banks and hedge funds that are run at the FDIC and the SEC, respectively. Although, of course, as we've seen in the last few weeks, that doesn't always go smoothly either. But the U.S. Bankruptcy Code, on the other hand, is just not designed to handle financial services firms, especially when they deal in newer, more volatile assets. Here's Greg Pesh with the firm White & Case. He's working on the Celsius filing. Going into these crypto bankruptcies, I knew on some level that they would present you know, novel issues of law and technology. I knew there was going to be a, a real element of dealing with real people and their problems in a way that is sort of removed from typical practice. And um, that couldn't begin to kind of describe what we have confronted. We'll get to those novel issues. But first, I wanted to highlight something Greg just said, dealing with real people and their problems. Many of the creditors in these cases, the people who are owed money by the company that declared bankruptcy, are individual account holders who bought and stored their crypto on these platforms. Many were the so-called crypto bros you hear so much about. Uh, most of the people that, that had money and cred were, you know, longtime crypto hodlers. Crypto toggles? Hodlers. Hodlers. Okay, that's a new term for me. By the way, that's Greg Steinman, an attorney with McDermott, Will & Emery, who worked on one of the earliest crypto bankruptcies, Cred Inc., and he's now working on the Voyager case. 
And as I later learned, a hodler is someone who won't sell their crypto under any circumstances. It's based on the acronym Hold On For Dear Life. But Simon says that unlike with the Cred Inc. filing, which was only a little over two years ago, the creditors today aren't necessarily the diehard crypto bros. What we saw in these cases were a lot of retail customers get hit very hard. Um, there were a lot of very difficult calls throughout the beginning stages of the case where you know people were couldn't pay their mortgage, uh, lost college funds, lost wedding funds. Don Clark with Genova Burns also talked about the difficult conversations he's had to have with individual account holders who thought that storing their coins on a platform was like making a secured bank deposit. You know, most people who gave away their tokens, they said, you know, well, I'm secure. You're not secured. You don't have, you, you just gave an unsecured loan. You handed away the keys to your car. Uh, and it's not like you retain the title. And by the way, I'm not saying that you should or shouldn't feel sorry for these folks. The point is that these are not conversations corporate bankruptcy attorneys typically have. In the bankruptcy process, even unsecured creditors have rights, and many of them may be able to recover something, if not everything. Many crypto account holders are getting involved in the bankruptcy process grudgingly at best, according to the attorneys I spoke with. That's because it's tough for bankruptcy courts to accommodate a core value of the crypto community, anonymity. Crypto owners go to great lengths to avoid having their real legal names connected to their online wallets where they store their coins, in part because that's just how it's done, in part because, well, some people who own crypto are doing illegal things with it. But it's also partly because failing to do so makes someone a huge target for hacking and phishing attacks. That's why many were appalled when last year a bankruptcy judge in New York ordered Celsius to release personal information on tens of thousands of its customers. The judge said that, all things being equal, the public has a right to know what happens in the judicial system. But Brown-Rudnick attorney Ken Owlett, who's working with unsecured creditors in the BlockFi case, said this could have disastrous consequences for Celsius's customers. A bad actor can look at that, sort it by value, and figure, hey, if these people had a couple million on Celsius, maybe they've still got a couple million on their computer and target those people for hacking. I guess that would be the equivalent of like publishing a list of people that have cash in their mattress and their address and where they're where their mattress is located. Exactly, except it's a lot easier for a bad actor to hack somebody's computer than to go and break into their home. You can do it from the comfort of your own home in a country far away from the United States. And of course, it's much harder to catch a crypto hacker than it is to catch a home burglar. Now, it's far from clear that all crypto creditors will have to disclose their identities. Depending on the case and on the judge hearing that case, they may be able to retain some anonymity. But Greg Pesh with White & Case says some account holders are choosing to just walk away because they'd rather stay anonymous. Yeah, I, I had that conversation with somebody this morning that wanted to take a position in one of these cases, and uh, I told them that, you know, they had to use a real name. What was their reaction? They, uh, they're seriously considering kind of sitting by the sidelines, regrettably, because they, they don't want to, you know, have all of that, that publicity. You know, and it's amusing during these court hearings, between 500 and 1,000 people dial in to each of these court hearings. And when the judge opens the lines in these various bankruptcies, they have to say, you know, if you're logging in, you have to use your real name. You can't use a nickname. You can't use, you know, iPhone. You can't use, you know, 
an offensive term in your name. And if you do, they will kick you out. So it's, it's um, these disclosure issues kind of come up in a variety of ways. Another factor that makes crypto bankruptcies unique is that a lot of the creditors want to get paid back in kind. That means they don't want cash. They want their coins back. Here's an attorney working for creditors in the Genesis filing, Proskauer Rose's Brian Rosen. In our particular matter, they're looking to be paid back in kind. They like that. That's what they want. They're, they're that kind of junkie, and they want to be involved in the crypto world, and they want, to, they want to be the ones who take advantage of the currency that they were involved with beforehand. And when I first heard this, I had maybe the same thought that some of you are having right now. Really? Through the bankruptcy process, you could cash out, cut some of your crypto winter losses, and you're choosing not to? But think about it this way. At least some of the coins that a bankrupt crypto platform held are still there. Not all of them, of course, because that's how fractional reserve lending works, but some. If a court converts those coins into cash and uses that to pay out the creditors, what price point does the court use? Is it the price of crypto on the day of the bankruptcy filing? If so, that could be terrible for the account holders and really good for the filer. It all comes down to that term I learned earlier in the episode, HODL. Hold on for dear life. Deb Kofsky with the firm Troutman Pepper, who's working on multiple crypto cases right now, laid out the stakes for me. Just looking at it you know, very broadly, thinking about all of the different potential constituents, what this really means is if there is a recovery in the value of cryptocurrency, because obviously if these cases were filing at, at a real trough, who benefits from the increase in value? You know, do the customers who put the Bitcoin on the platform, do they benefit? Are they locked in at, at whatever Bitcoin was worth on the petition date? There's real questions of equity to be answered here. What What's ultimately fair? What does the bankruptcy code actually say? What are parties going to agree to? And who's going to be objecting? The attorneys I spoke to said these are all novel questions and that the bench is creating new case law, new precedents with every one of these decisions. Many lawyers also said that getting acclimated to the culture of crypto has been challenging. The attorneys have had to really up their social media games, particularly with Twitter, the platform of choice for many of the unsecured creditors, aka crypto account holders. It's not easy working with the debtor side either, according to Dan Basikoff of the firm Loeb & Loeb. He's worked with crypto companies on non-public pre-bankruptcy solvency issues, and he says the folks who run crypto platforms are just a different breed. You just see a risk tolerance in this industry that is really through the roof. A lot of these companies, you know, grew quickly and became very large on the back of a founder who is in some ways a, a visionary. I mean, unlike in a lot of other companies who are managed by kind of professional CEOs who had a job of CEO at a different company before this one and will be a CEO at some other company after that one. You know, these are people who ra who were raised in their companies, who grew the company from nothing and, you know, just have a different viewpoint than kind of more professional management might have. Beyond trying to grasp the culture of crypto holders, or in many cases, the messianic mindset of crypto founders, bankruptcy attorneys have also had to learn about the underlying technology behind all of this. And Troutman Pepper's Deb Kofsky told me that's a very steep learning curve. You've got the learning curve issue. You, you know, when when you hear things like, "Well, the debtor has a lot of STE that's locked up," well, you got to understand what that means and what the potential implications are for the 
debtors reorganization and the distributions to customers. Yeah, I'll say, I mean, by the way, I, I certainly don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, flare tokens are being airdropped. Who gets them? Well, gosh, you know, first you have to understand what's an airdrop? What's a flare token? What is the airdrop being based on? Who ought to benefit from the? So there's a lot of, there's definitely a learning curve. It goes without saying, but you won't find definitions for any of those terms in a law school textbook. The lawyers I spoke to all suggested different ways to quickly learn how to speak crypto ease. There are, of course, white papers galore, but there are also crypto podcasts and YouTube channels, and sometimes there's just no substitute for finding an expert and having them explain it to you face to face. Vincent Indelicato, a colleague of Brian Rose's at Proskauer Rose, says this is all stuff that bankruptcy attorneys should be used to. Us bankruptcy lawyers like to think of ourselves as the last standing generalist of the legal practice. It's not uh, uncommon at all, frankly, for uh, many of us to quickly become subject matter experts in an area that we previously have had very little to any uh, involvement in. But while bankruptcy attorneys may be able to quickly get up to speed, can the bankruptcy courts? Wouldn't it be better if Congress or some financial regulator were responsible for unwinding what were some of the most cutting-edge fintech startups that operated essentially like unregulated banks? The glib answer to that question is, well, it doesn't really matter because these cases are on the bankruptcy docket whether the courts are ready or not. But Greg Pesch says he thinks the beauty of the U.S. bankruptcy code is that it's actually surprisingly adaptable. I think it's an interesting question. When Lehman Brothers filed, there were, you know, this, the narrative was that was the bankruptcy code ready to deal with too big to fail. And when, you know, these mass tort cases came about, the question was, well, is the, is the bankruptcy system ready for these mass tort bankruptcies and injury victims and whatnot? And now it's the same narrative here. You know, the bankruptcy process is extremely flexible and able to be innovated by creative attorneys. And who knows, if we somehow enter a crypto spring or even a crypto summer, maybe these platforms will come out of Chapter 11 even stronger, maybe even a little bit wiser. But if the crypto winter goes on or gets even chillier, bankruptcy courts are going to have a lot more work on their plates. Because, as we saw with the recent failures of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and others, crypto problems have the potential to become everyone's problems really fast. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. I had reporting help from Alex Wolf and James Nanny. And a special thank you to Andrew Satter, Maria Chachian, and David Jolly. Our editor and executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court, the filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Bloomberg Law's Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon of the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.